How to Use Sky Atlases on episode 328 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky and this podcast is for everybody else who likes going out under the stars. So Shane, we received an email from Andrew who is in New Zealand and a bit of a backstory there is he had a 10 inch daub and was looking to get a smaller refractor and had been debating a couple different instruments and eventually went with one of the uh, 72 ED telescopes and kept the dub, which I think was a pretty smart decision. Yeah, nothing wrong with that at all. Always nice to have the big aperture and then the smaller aperture for the wide field of views and the quick peaks. I think yeah. that's uh, going to be pretty nice. And I was sure jealous when he writes us the emails and talks about observing under the southern skies in New Zealand because I missed out on my New Zealand trip due to the pandemic. Yeah, you know, that's a bucket list item for sure for me. Do some observing under southern hemisphere skies. So maybe what I'll do is just read Andrew's email and then we can talk about how we use sky atlases. And this was very timely because I'd recently purchased a book and I was recently out observing here at my dark sky site. And I had my atlas, I actually took a photo of it. I, I forgot to put in the show notes, but it very much is what he describes. And I don't know if we've ever described exactly how we use our sky atlases in this way before. We talked about other ways, but this is a very particular way and thought it would make a nice short episode for people to hear how we use the sky atlas. So without further ado, uh, would you like me to read Shane or did you want to give it? Yeah, a go for it. Sure. Andrew writes, hi, Chris, I was listening to one of your earlier podcasts and a thought struck me regarding sky atlases. It may be worth bringing it up on the show. As a newbie, I recently moved from tablet to paper sky atlas. I thought that was pretty interesting, Shane, that here we have somebody who a newer observer to a certain extent, he's been observing a bit. So he would definitely be somebody who has some experience, but he's moving from the tablet to the paper atlas. I just thought that was interesting since I think probably a lot of newcomers these days are probably starting with the digital planetarium software and that he's now transitioning over to the paper atlases. So this is just a different perspective. I, I thought that was interesting. Not sure what your thoughts were. Yeah. You know, I, I like that he's trying different methods too, because you and I preach quite a bit about using paper atlases, but I'm glad a number of our listeners have responded about their enjoyment or strong usage of tablets or, or even cell phones, thread film and lowering mm -hmm. light and all this kind of stuff. So what I like about it is there's really no right way. It's just what works for you. And I'm glad he tried a couple ways and found something that uh, he prefers. He mentions that when he was going from the tablet to the paper atlases, and I'll just go on to continue reading, Andrew says, I was thrown for a loop. The first hurdle was scale. The IDSA is a large scale atlas, which means the stars are difficult to visualize versus your naked eye experience. Having two atlases for a beginner would seem to be a good move. Like a finder scope, one for orientation and one for zoning in on the object. The more vexing issue was how to orientate the atlas and move the telescope to find my target. I knew the top of the page was north and the left is east, but the pictures in the atlas stubbornly refused to meet my expectations. If north is at the top of the page, why was I having to turn the atlas so north was facing west to make the page and stars align? This now seems obvious, but looking for answers to help with my initial confusion was difficult. Lying awake at night, I had a moment of clarity. I don't know about you, Shane, but 
Sometimes I too lie awake at night thinking about my observing if I can't sleep. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Andrew goes on to say the issue was I was thinking in terms of terrestrial north, not north relative to the object and celestial north. This meant that instead of moving the scope up, down for north, south, and left, right for east, west, I should have been adapting the movement to the current position of the object relative to the celestial north. Early in the evening, north may have meant left motion. The next morning, north would have meant right movement. Only as it crosses the meridian would north equal up. And keep in mind that he is in the southern hemisphere, folks. So, But I think this, this is a valuable lesson regardless of where you are. He goes on to say, Southern Correspondent Observing Report, an unexpected triple. So he's going to give us a bit of an observing report. Then we'll talk about how we use atlases. Woke up at 3 a.m. It was supposedly to be cloudy, but wasn't. And he may have had a few beverages the evening before. The Milky Way was clear and bright overhead, bifurcating the sky north to south. The neighbors, a paddock over, were still winding down from a wedding celebration, low base against a quiet of the night. I, I've had that too many times out here where I observe is, uh, there's a lot of festivities that may happen at a beach environment. And yes, you can certainly hear that uh, thumping base sometimes while you're hunting down globular clusters in the early morning. Andrew goes on to say, out came the 72 ED, almost its first light, scanning the Milky Way. Eta Carina hovered into view, then the gem cluster, NGC 3293, then the wishing well, NGC 352, which is also a cluster. All three hovered at the edge of my 30 millimeter UFF eyepiece, like shy wallflowers at a dance. Ooh, how fitting considering there was a dance going on nearby. The center of the field was dominated by the soft orange glow of Mu Karina. I knew I had purchased the right telescope. I am finding clusters, especially large clusters, much more compelling with the 72 ED versus the 10 inch Dob. The views of these objects in the 14 millimeter Morpheus are fantastic. Without the context of the larger field, they lose their magic. Andrew thanks us in guessing this is Maori, Nagi Mahi. Andrew. So this was timely, I thought, Shane, because recently I purchased the Observer's Sky Atlas 4th edition, and it walks people through this a little bit more than any other text that I have. What they do is they have a naked eye chart, just like we see in many early at atlases or beginner atlases of a region of sky. So they give you Cetus, for example, or Cygnus or Boots. And then they label the objects, which the author is putting the focus on, and they draw a rounded box around it. And sometimes the box isn't square. It's might be a, a rounded rectangle or it might be a very strange kind of pattern. And then they zoom in almost like you would with a finder scope. And I wondered why this text was so popular amongst observers back in the day. This, this is an older book that's recently been updated. But when I saw that, I realized that this in essence is what Andrew is talking about, allowing people to see a large swath of sky, what you see with the unaided eye, and then gradually zoom in. And I'm just wondering, Shane, if that mirrors any of the techniques that you've learned for observing or what your experience has been in using a star atlas. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's there's some similarities there with how I use them. I can empathize a, a little bit too with Andrew talking about scale. That's always something that depending on the atlas can some uh, sometimes it jumps out at you. Sometimes it's an issue, sometimes it's not. 
but you kind of get used to scale regardless. The other thing too, that sometimes messes me up is, uh, during planetary season, sometimes I'll be really focused on my star hopping and identifying guide stars and occasionally forget that one of those stars is Saturn or something like that. <laughs> and then, you know, after a few minutes of frustration, realize, oh yeah, that's not a star. And, and you know, that messed up my ability to find things. So, you know, lots of fun nuances there. Yeah. My first experience with the, with the scale was when planetarium software first became popular and I started using that, I thought it would be this amazing thing to have in the field. And then when I took it into the field, I struggled with it. And it was because of scale, because the planetarium software, when you're sitting in a room, it's great. It sort of has this infinite scale to it. You can zoom out as far as you want and you can zoom in as far as you want. But when you get out under the night sky, that's not as useful for some reason. It becomes this futz factor where you're trying to get it at just the right scale. And for me anyway, it became an exercise in frustration. At one point in time, I took a print of the work of E.E. E. Barnard, the photographic atlas of selected regions of the Milky Way. And what this is, it's an early 20th century photographic atlas of, as he says, just selected regions of the Milky Way. I have a, a printed copy that I made and laminated for you, Send of the Stars. As well, I bought the reissued one, I think about 10 or 12 years ago, a reissued one came out that somebody had done some editing and such and allowed you to buy a hardcover version. Wonderful text. When you take it out under the night sky, you realize something, and that's that Barnard had scaled this appropriately so that if you have it sitting on a low tabletop, which you're looking at at arm's length, and you hold your fist up to the chart, it's approximately at the same scale. I had taken it under the night sky and recognized this, and it made it sort of supremely usable. And that's when I realized that the size of the stars and constellations on a chart really can help aid you in finding things so quickly. Because even though that Barnard Atlas was pretty old and the charts are hand-drawn and maybe a little bit difficult to read, I did find that to be extremely usable. I think the interstellarum chart is pretty close to that as well. And that's become one of my favorite charts to use. I think you're using that chart a little bit as well, aren't you? Yeah, I've got interstellarum, uh, but my main one at the telescope still is the pocket sky atlas. And uh, I have the larger, the jumbo version, I think they call it. Mm -hmm. um, but I I just like the usability of that one. It's, it's not as big and bulky. Uh, interstellarum, it's a little... It's a little bit big to have in my hand right at the eyepiece. Glad you mentioned the pocket atlas. So I took a photo of this yesterday. Actually, I'll just text it to you because when I was last observing, I was out here, had my stuff set up, and I'm going to send you a photo. I just walked into my cabin, and this is exactly what I had set up at my table for observing. I think you should see it there, which shows on the uh, left the interstellarum, which is a large atlas. I'm not sure how big it is. The chart pages, I think, are probably at least uh, 11 by 13 or something like that. And then on the right, I have the pocket sky atlas. So I was looking at the backed out, the naked eye view, and then the zoomed in view of the interstellarum atlas. And then I have my all my sketching utensils nearby. 
And that's how I use the atlases, just like how Andrew was saying, using one atlas to see sort of that greater overall picture to get that orientation down very quickly, and then to use the zoomed in version as well. Sometimes I find the zoomed out version, just that naked eye version is all I need for objects that I'm more familiar with. So in those instances, I just grab the pocket sky atlas and go out because usually I sit here and work away. And then I go out and make some observations, do some sketching, and then come in and work through the next object instead of, instead of getting cold at the eyepiece. And it was like minus two or minus three that night. And then, like I said, if if the object needs more zoomed in, then I grab the other atlas. And sometimes I'll even have them both out together, but I have them both and use them both in tandem. And I think that that's something that we've never really touched on before is just, just using those multiple atlases and multiple resources. Because I noticed when we were out once, I think you and Mike had some double stars you were looking for and you were using the pocket atlas. And then I think one of the uh, Cambridge double star atlases or something like that, or am I misremembering? Mm, yeah, I don't recall. All right. So anything else we can talk about with the use of atlases in the field for folks? Uh, just that there's a lot of different atlases out there. Um, now you can certainly require a second job if you want to purchase all of them, but, <laughs> but um, just know that there's lots of different ones out there. And if one maybe isn't working for you um, or, or you get frustrated with it, there might be a different one that just aligns with your style a little bit better. So maybe your observing friends have some different atlases too, just like telescopes. You know, sometimes uh, they can just allow you to play around with a different atlas to see if you like it. Um, I remember uh, one observing session Mike brought out, it's the Sky Atlas 2000, but it's the large desktop sized one, but all laminated mm -hmm. and certainly not one that you can have at the telescope, but you can have it on a table beside your telescope and it's quite large. It's very easy to read. It's yet another option out there. And, and like I say, there's, there's many, many other ones that an astronomer can pick from. I wore out my laminated edition of the Sky Atlas 2000. I absolutely trashed it. And I felt so bad at the time doing it because it, I bought it with money I had from my very first job in my and I remember how much it took me to save up. I think it might've been close to a hundred dollars, which for me at the time was, was a lot of money. Like you were saying, you, you go and get a second job to afford some of this stuff. So for me, a hundred dollars or anything close to a hundred dollars at the time was a lot of money, but I, I wore that Atlas out, but I learned a lot wearing that Atlas out. I suppose that's a good sign more than anything else, but what other Atlases have you used? You mostly just use the pocket star Atlas or do you use any of the Cambridge double star atlases or any of those ones? Yeah, I use the Cambridge double star atlas, the pocket sky atlas. A long time ago, there was the tri atlas, which was a free PDF download that you could just yeah. print out, but I don't believe that one's available anymore. There might be some links out there to download yeah. it. I'm not sure. Uh, Uranometria, uh, sky atlas, 2000, the bright star atlas. I use a number of them to be, to be candid. But the one that definitely gets the most use is the Pocket Sky Atlas. For me, my, my most used atlas is definitely the Interstellarium Atlas. And the reason is, is that it has a lot of interesting, unique objects. The Pocket Atlas I use a fair bit. And then the other atlas, and I used this one for a long time, but I think I ended up observing virtually everything in it was the Cambridge Photographic Atlas. Mm -hmm. I love that atlas. Uh, Mike ended up buying a copy as well. And 
there's so many targets for binocular observing in there. There's a lot of asterisms that have been discovered by amateur astronomers. And so we would just sit back in our lawn chairs in the Grasslands National Park and just hunt down those targets in the Cambridge Photographic Atlas. I think that's a, a wonderful atlas if people can find a copy. Yeah, yeah, I do have that one as well. And yeah, it's it's really, uh, it, it's beautiful just to look at and uh, super functional in the field. Like it really does give you sort of a, a unique look at the sky and, and works great with binoculars. Do you have the newer single edition of the Uranometria or the two volume edition for Northern and Southern hemispheres? Yeah, the two volume one. And then there's a third book, which is just, I think the guide, guide. The guide book. Yeah. I bought the combined version for certain objects. It's really good. I do use it, but I use it sparingly. And it really is just a desktop reference because I think the book weighs like eight pounds or something like that. It's kind of ridiculously heavy. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's not a lot of these ones. I don't find very effective to hold in my hand at the telescope, um, mm -hmm. other than the sky Atlas, the pocket sky Atlas, I should say. Typically I just use the interstellarum and then the pocket Atlas gets some pretty good use. And then always the Cambridge photographic Atlas is sitting around here somewhere. It's just over behind me. So that's kind of how we use atlases. I'd love to hear, and I think you would as well, Shane, how other listeners use sky atlases in the field at their telescopes, because this is something that I, I hadn't really thought of to explain as far as my own observing goes. And I think it is worthwhile, but sort of the mechanics of observing with an atlas in the field. So I think there's some use to that. I, I'm just curious to hear how other people use the atlases at the eyepiece. Yeah. I'm also curious if anybody is using some different sky atlases that we didn't, that we didn't reference. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure there's ones out there you and I probably haven't even heard of. So, <laughs> so if somebody's using different ones, let us know. Uh, I'd like to check them out. Yeah. So would I, I'll probably end up buying them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anything to add to this, sir? One of our short shows, Shane? No, that's it, Chris. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and do us a favor of sharing the show with other stargazers you know, and you can always reach us at actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.